Another Way to Play, episode 110. One of the questions I really thought I really liked that you sent was, how do you define freedom? And that was one of the biggest, that was one of the biggest shifts in mindset for me as I went through all this, was defining freedom in my own world. This is Blake Haxton, U.S. Para Rower. And if you want to learn to make the next chapter of your life better than the last, then you should be listening to Another Way to Play with my good friend, Hans Trezina. Welcome to Another Way to Play. I'm your host, Hans Strazina, Olympic athlete turned top producing Bay Area realtor. I believe that your success or failure is determined by your ability to compete and win when it comes to your mindset. Twice a week, I talk with other high performers to share the lessons and inspiration that allowed them to blow the roof off their success. So get ready to have some fun, be inspired, and most importantly, learn the skills you need to win in your own life. This is Another Way to Play. I am your host, Hans Strazina, and I believe that your success or your failure in life is determined by your ability to succeed and win when it comes to your mindset. Today's guest is someone that I'm really excited to bring on. Uh, He hasn't been on a ton of podcasts and frankly isn't even super active on social, but he's got an amazing story. His name is Blake Haxton. He's a U.S. para rower and has a pretty amazing story to share with us. When he was in high school, basically he ended up in the hospital in March of his senior year due to uh, what is essentially a flesh-eating bacteria that ultimately cost him both of his legs and definitely changed the trajectory of his life in a big way. Uh, but one of the reasons I wanted to bring him on is because he's a United States Paralympian, was fourth place in the single in Rio de Janeiro, same games that I was at, and he's going back for more. He's actually training now in two sports, both in the rowing and now canoe, which is really exciting to see because he's just out there killing it. Obviously, somebody who had a very early age had a huge amount of trauma. A lot of things happened to him, and he carries a really incredible mindset. He has one thing in particular where we go off on a pretty large tangent, but you're going to want to listen to it kind of midway through the episode around having the right constraints in your life. And that's how he sort of defines freedom, because we all have constraints, as Blake will tell you, but it's having the right ones around you is, is critical. If you get value out of this episode, head over to iTunes, leave a rating and review because it really helps me grow, shows uh, me that you're listening and gives me some feedback on how I can keep improving and obviously helps get it out in front of some other people as well. So I really appreciate you for that. And without any further ado, let's get into it with my buddy, Blake Haxton. Blake, thank you so much for being on the show today, man. I'm really honored to have you on. Hey, absolutely. Honored to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, let's let's just talk briefly about what you got going on now, and then we'll get into your story. So, so tell us kind of what it is you're working on now, like where you're at in the world, and um, just give us that little quick glimpse at, into your life. Yeah, sure. So sitting here in Columbus, Ohio, I've been here for the last six months straight, I think, in this exact room, maybe. Um, uh, still, still training for, uh, for rowing and for the canoe, which is still new to me, but getting up to speed, which has been great. Uh, so training pretty hard, looking forward to Tokyo next year, hopefully, or whenever that comes around, but training for the single in, in, in rowing and for the, uh, sprint canoe on the Paris side. And then, uh, still working for the investment firm. I started working for right after Rio actually. So I've been at the same place 
I cover energy and transportation stocks and bonds for them. And that's been going great. I made the shift remote pretty, pretty seamlessly, I think. And that's really been it for me. That's kind of my focus. I mean, I'm hopefully we'll get some more, some more confirmation around dates and races and things coming up here. But for the time being, that's the holding pattern. We were talking before we hit record, like you're working more or less full-time. Granted, it's flexible with COVID and all that stuff, but you're training for not one, but two Olympic sports at the moment. So you've got a lot happening in your world. Yeah, a lot's going on. And but I'll tell you, especially in 2020, this is maybe the first time I'm really grateful I have that much going on just because there aren't any other options. You know, for the last, right? Like for the last six months, it's been, well, I can work or train. And I, you know, that, that has exhausted my schedule for most of the last four years. But now it just feels good that I'm not bored or don't have anything to do. Yeah, man. Well, I mean, there's a lot there and you obviously didn't get there overnight. So let's, let's back up and let's talk about where your journey actually began. Yeah, sure. So I, uh, I was born here in Columbus and then grew up in Connecticut and ended up back in Columbus in high school, which is where I picked up rowing uh, for the first time as a freshman. And I feel like a lot of here in rowing, it just was a great fit. You know, normally people don't start until later in life, but that was true of me, jumping the boat and just it was just great. I, I loved it. I loved the team aspect. The physiology was a good fit. The whole thing. So kept doing that ball and spring all through high school and just just kept growing in that, more interested. I was really lucky to come through with a great group of teammates. And, you know, that, that makes such a big difference. Uh, still some of my best friends to this day. So all around great experience. You know, I'd, I'd grown up playing sports before then. I think I'd played just about everything growing up. But that was the first thing that really – you know, I really, really stuck and I was able to succeed in. So yeah, that was, that was how I got there. And then going into the spring of my senior year in high school is when I got sick. Started one night, Saturday night, I was playing at a basketball game, rec league game, and my calf felt sore when I was done. I didn't think much of it, just felt like muscle soreness, maybe it was bruised, whatever. Got up the next morning, yeah, okay, it's a little worse. As Sunday goes on, it's getting worse and worse. I keep thinking, okay, maybe I really did something to it. If it's like this in the morning, I'll go to the doctor. Woke up Monday morning, couldn't walk on it. Was really in a lot of pain. Went to the doctor's office. He sent me straight to the ER. Maybe an hour or two after that, um, my memory gets kind of fuzzy, so I'll have to give you this second hand. But my right leg was turning red. It was starting to swell. I was, again, I was blacking out and in. And the next day, they moved me to the ICU. And the last memory I have personally it, that's coherent is the orthopedic surgeon coming in and saying, Hey, we don't know what's wrong with you. We're going to take you to surgery, go in and find out what's going on with your leg. Uh, they did that and found out that what I had was necrotizing fasciitis, which is the technical name for the flesh eating disease. Unfortunately, wow. yes, sadly it's about as bad as it sounds. Really the only way to treat it is they have to remove whatever tissue the infection gets in and it can move, they say up to a centimeter an hour. So you really got to get on quickly. Wow. Yeah, it, it, it'll, it'll get you in a hurry. The mortality rate, depending who you ask, is somewhere around 50%, maybe a little more. So, again, just not, not a good situation. doesn't really matter who you are, how healthy you are. Bad news. And so they got in my leg, and they went in, took all that tissue off. I wasn't getting better. They found that the, it had gotten into my bloodstream and actually moved into my arm, my right arm. Took me back to surgery, took off that tissue. Thankfully, no muscle or anything in my right arm, just just all the skin and fascia on top of the muscle. And but at that point, my heart stopped on the table. 
was going into organ failure was, you know, it, it was looking pretty, pretty ugly. They put me on bypass, put me on, you know, heart, lung, liver, kidney, everything had shut down. Uh, I was pretty much circling the drain at that point. Jeez. Yeah. They did. Uh, I, I was at one hospital here in, in Columbus, and they, they were going to move me because there was a particular type of life support machine that Ohio State's medical center had that could keep me alive for longer. So they did that, moved me. Uh, part of that, I'm told now, was just to give my friends and family time to get there and say their goodbyes, and that was about it. Really sort of a Hail Mary to get any more than that. But I um, got moved, and the, the infection was mostly taken care of at that point. But then the problem was it was still the rest of the system was wrecked. So I wasn't getting any blood flow into my left leg and most of my right leg at this point. I still had both, but they were turning to chronic due to lack of, lack of nutrition and lack of oxygen. So that was the new battle of fight. Uh, and I, again, I was out for all of this. I think I was out for about six weeks. And then little by little, they, keep, they kept having to revise those amputations higher as my system was, was fighting off what had occurred, but then dying little by little. So you're, you're saying you were literally unconscious for six weeks? Yes. Well, there's some debate around that. I don't, I'll tell you, I don't have a coherent memory for six weeks, and I was in, a, I was in an outright medically induced coma for at least two so i mean yeah and then and then you're on this like string of, of really powerful sedatives coming out of it you know when you do come out of it you know it's not like waking up in the morning you know you get like fits and starts of reality and then that that finally turns into a coherent picture and by the time i did come to i think i had i went to surgery 20 times i think in total and I remember the last two, maybe in terms of remember, you know, them telling me we're going into surgery and we're gonna do whatever and and whatever it was. By that point, I was pretty stable. Um, I mean, I was a physical wreck, but you know, it wasn't as life and death as it had been. So, so just for context, you're still in high school at this point. Yes, I was eighteen. You're 18, you're, you're on the rowing team, you're playing basketball when this kicks off, you're like, you're doing all the normal 18-year-old stuff, right? Yep. And then, bang, this, this whole curveball, for lack of a better term, comes into your life, and here you are where you don't remember six weeks and 20 surgeries. Yeah, you, that's the perfect summary. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I mean, that's enough to like last someone a lifetime for just crazy stories, I imagine. But so, so you kind of come into these last couple of surgeries and, and it's, I mean, you're here. So there's like a, a happy ending, hopefully to some degree here. So, so fill us in on what happened from there. Yeah, I've kind of spoiled the ending here, but yeah, the, so as I was coming out of it, you know, the, there were some things they had to straighten out. You know, I wasn't, obviously it was just complications from that much trauma that had been inflicted um i spent another six weeks in the icu and then i got moved to the rehab hospital i think i ended up being in the hospital almost for three months on the dot total and as i was coming to in the icu it it's important i think for frame of reference that i really was just getting reality and pieces and it was really frustrating because i knew something was deeply deeply wrong Right, like I could remember what was going on at the first hospital and how how painful that was, but I just couldn't piece anything together. And finally, when I started coming to, I could say, okay, here's what happened. Here's what you've been through. Here's why you're in the shape you're in. 
uh, I remember my first couple of thoughts were sort of relieved that at least now I know what's going on. You know, for, like, for example, I, had, I remember one night, well, I don't know what time of day it was, but I had this hallucination where I was at home watching TV, sitting on the couch, and I couldn't get up. Like, I wanted to go to the fridge, and I just couldn't, I couldn't get off the couch. And the way, you know, my perception of the world was that I should be able to do that, when in reality, well, no, that's not, it's not mechanically possible anymore. But that, like, that confusion was so frustrating. It just kept telling me, okay, something's deeply wrong, and you don't understand it. And that, that finally got resolved, which was nice. And then coming to terms with the as bad as things were, it was abundantly clear that I should have died and didn't. And that was a very, you know, that generated a lot of gratitude. And I mean, just look, looking at myself, first of all, I mean, I think I went into the hospital probably 200 pounds. And at this point, I mean, obviously, amputations being what they are, but I think I was like 85 or 90. And, you know, I'm 155 today. So, you know, it's, I was, you know, they can't feed you when you're on life support like that, or it'll destroy your liver and kill you. So all the muscle mass, even my upper body, all the fat tissue, all that's gone, totally emaciated. So I was dealing with that, but yeah, then, then came through in the ICU little by little, I was starting to improve, really starting to improve quickly. You know, it was, you could see week over week, Hey, last week I couldn't sit up or speak and this week I can. And that made that process, I think a little easier because there were so many milestones that I was passing on improvement. And then even going to the rehab hospital, same story. I was getting better so quickly that it was easy. I say easy. It was incredibly difficult. But in some ways, it was easier to look at that and say, okay, as bad as this is, I'm not going to be here for very long. And then when I got home, this is probably, I went to the hospital in March. I got home in July. And that's when things started to become more difficult for me because now I'm sort of plateauing in my recovery. And now I'm, now I'm in the phase where I'm trying to work out what I'm going to do with my life. And, all, you know, like as you mentioned, you know, I went from being, you know, March of your senior year of high school, got all my college applications in, I'm starting to hear back, thinking about rolling there, I've got all these plans, like where I'm going to go, and then it's just bang, all that's off the table. And that was, that was really difficult. We can get into more of that in terms of how that went. But that was the, the crucible moment, I think. Yeah. And to have it at such sort of a pivotal moment where so many people are like, like you said, just preparing for that next chapter of life, which is college. And you were clearly a great athlete at 200 pounds and rowing and, you know, all these things like you had, you had some opportunities in front of you, surely. And then bang, like just, you brought up the fact that you had some like gratitude moments immediately. Like how, what do you attribute that to? Because I think someone that went through something similar could just as easily have been mad or blamed or, or you know, gone into a very different headspace, right? But you, you talked about you went to gratitude and, and just trying to mentally progress through the recovery phases of it in what seemed like a, a good state, maybe, maybe not, but like, what do you attribute that all to? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't mean to give anyone the impression I was, you know, batting a thousand on the, uh, the attitude front there at all i mean it was you know it was ups and downs but I, I i do think looking back on it mostly ups but the reason it was mostly ups is to your point around gratitude there was one day in particular as and you know i'm coming through the icu i'm coming out of the coma i'm beginning to be able to just connect dots as we ordinarily think and one day in particular i think it was actually prom day is what did it and i'm getting like texts from my buddies about they're going to dance and like they had a regatta that day so they gotta go row and do the whole thing 
I was like, oh, this is this is awful. <laughs> I mean, this is just terrible. There is nowhere in the world I would rather be than with them and not here. And you know, I just kind of found myself going down this downward spiral of, of despair. And for whatever reason, my mom was there that day. She was there every day, but. I saw my mom sitting in the corner of the room and I could barely get my head over the rail of the bed to see, but it became very clear in that moment that as bad as this was, it would have been so much worse if my mom wasn't there and that she wasn't who she was and wasn't taking such good care of me. And the same goes for the rest of my family. You know, my, my dad and my, my grandpa and my brother and my sister, on and on it goes. And when I started realizing that, that you know this kind of thing can happen to anybody you know it's it's just a kind of like getting hit by lightning you know it's the risk it's the risk we all take for getting out of bed and everybody has to take that risk but not everybody has that network around them that can help them mitigate that risk and that was where it made me feel really lucky you know like this didn't i don't think this singled me out i don't think i'm the exception that i get that i'm entitled to any you know less risk than anyone else but Neither am I entitled to have people around me like this looking out for me and bailing me out. And, and I had that. And that, that just became perfectly clear. And again, as I say, that wasn't, it wasn't my mindset all the time. There were plenty of things that were, you know, really low moments. But when I found myself going into those low moments, I tried to come back to, hey, remember the people you have around you. Remember that, you know, you've got a future ahead of you. Try and put things out there. And, and just get, get a little bit better every day. And when I was doing that, I was improving more quickly. I was in a much better mind space. So that was a lesson learned early on that I still have not perfected in any way, shape, or form, but I'm still working on it. When I do get it figured out, I'm a lot more, I'm a lot happier, I'm a lot more productive. I believe it, man. I mean, to much lesser degree, this whole COVID shelter-in-place experience we're all going through is, is, is an, sort of a one of those opportunities to test that mindset and that gratitude because there's a good chunk of people who all wanted to go back to the way things were, right? You hear that on social media and elsewhere all the time right now. And the alternative is to say, okay, this is the new normal. Like, how do I, how do I operate in this new environment? And, you know, I'm not going to try and sit here and say that us all having to sit inside you know, it's anything close to your, your near death experience here, but, but like the mindset still resonates to some degree. And, and obviously I think is, is a lesson that we can all pull from you and probably apply at this exact moment. You're listening to this because we're all going to be in it for a while still with COVID. Uh, sure not. Well, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, it's, I can tell you, it's one that I've had to sort of pull off the shelf and, and re-employ for myself in different times. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think there are parallels. I mean, I think there's, you know, for me, if I had to characterize my greatest struggles, a lot of it was really dealing with disappointment. And a lot of that came from, like you pointed out earlier, that phase in life, I had these great, you're sort of at peak possibility for an American student, right? You know, junior high school, you're about to choose where to go to college, all these things. Like, it just seems like the entire world is available to you. And in some ways it is. And, and then poof, that, a lot of that goes away. And one of the things that was hardest for me is as great as it was having them around as much as I, I loved them, I was watching all of my really close friends go through that process and, you know, up close and personal. And it was just like right in front of my face, like, here's what you would like to be doing the most and you can't. 
Uh, and I shouldn't, I shouldn't overstate it. I did, you know, I, I'd applied to Ohio State. I didn't think I would go, but I, I applied and I went, and it turned out to be great. Like, I cannot complain. Like, I, you know, I, I'd wanted to study business anyway. Like, I got the major I wanted, stayed there. So definitely happy ending on that front. But in that, at that point in time, you know, that spring and summer, you know, it was, there was a lot of, like, you know, what ifs and what could have been. And one thing that sort of surprised me as college went on and then even afterwards was it was so much harder to just emotionally early on because the comparison was so much easier to make. And, it, you know, the reason I'm thinking of this is, as you mentioned, with COVID, we say, oh, we wish we could go back to the way it was. I don't know how everyone else feels, but now we're you know, six months into this, whatever it is, and it's sort of a new normal. And I don't, you know, I'm not doing that as much. I'm not associating like, oh, man, you know, last April I was doing this. And, you know, here was what I could, or last month I was doing it. And as time went on in, in, again, in my own life, going through college and then later on, and people start going their own way and doing different things and things that I knew I wasn't going to do anyway, didn't really want to do. And that comparison just naturally decayed and went away. And it really helped. I mean, it really helped me kind of be back in my, you know, stay in my own lane. And I stopped making that comparison to some theoretical version of how my life was going to be. And, you know, made me ask, all right, how do I maximize what I've got today? Where do I want to go from here? And of course, at the same time, I continued physically improving, which was, was huge. I did get out, of, out ahead of myself a little bit. As I, as I said, I got home that summer and started to plateau. Physically, I wasn't really okay for another two years in terms of getting through it. I, 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 had, I didn't know that. Talk about comparisons. You know, I got home that summer and said, well, compared to the ICU, this is great. You know, I can like, I can, like sit up and talk and eat. This, this is awesome. And, and so, my, again, my, my benchmark was wrong. Or maybe not wrong, but it was just too low. And so as time went on, I said, oh, wow, I should have. If I just told myself to be a little more patient, that was not really the new normal. And the new normal would be better than I expected. So all that kind of happened at once, which – which again, I'm, I'm grateful for, but that, that was how the mind, how my mindset changed over those, that period of years in terms of comparing myself to other people and setting my own goals. I think it's comparable to greater or lesser degrees to, to the situation at the moment or to any other. You know, I, I, here's another thing I've learned that's been really interesting is you know, everybody, all of us have problems, everybody. And the difference between me and most other people is that you can see mine when you come in the room. They're pretty obvious, right? Like, you know, my left leg's amputated at the hip and my right leg's amputated pretty high above the knee. It's like, oh, all right, I see what you're dealing with. And people adjust accordingly. You know, people are great. They're more than happy. To, you know, it's usually pretty obvious if I need help with something and people are, are happy to help me out. Now, that's sort of a shot to my pride, or at least it was in the beginning anyway. So I, I had to get over myself a little bit. But the thing it showed me was, and for some reason, I, I'm still not certain why this happens, but people were much more willing to share what was going on in their lives with me after, you know, after I became an amputee. And man, man, like people are just going through horrible things, like all the time. Like it's, you know, and if you're not doing something bad now, like just give it a minute, right? And I mean, this year is a great example of that. You know, you go back to the beginning of the year. And it's, you know, you read your, like, New Year's tweets and everything's rosy. And it's like, oh, here we go. Let's, let's just all get smacked in the mouth. And it just goes to show, for me, what it gives me a lot more empathy with people. 
and a lot more patience. Not all the time. I'm not great at this, but it just goes to show, like, you know, we're, we're all trying to struggle through things. And no one can really walk in anyone else's shoes. I'm not a believer in that. You know, we don't – none of us really know what anyone else is going through. We're too complicated, in, in my view. But we can – you know, we can try. We, we, we can make an effort. And, you know, and that's been – I mean, just to see – you know, in going through my own issues, I've been exposed to the lives of other people going through theirs. And it just puts context around it. You know, like I just, and again, I was, I had a very, I mean, I got so lucky in terms of upbringing and where I was raised and my family, like just everything went right for 18 years. Well, there were some hiccups, but like my own personal life, more or less everything went right for, for 18 years. Like as lucky as you can get. And, you know, perfectly healthy. I hadn't been to the hospital since I was born. Like, it's just awesome. And going through that, you know, I mean, I knew the world was out there. But, you know, I kind of had this idyllic, to some extent, I had this idyllic view of the way life goes. And, and that's just not the case. You no, know, life is a thing lived under constraint. You know, that's not, a, that's not a bug. It's a feature. And, you know, one of, one of the questions I really, you know, we were – as we were emailing back and forth this we got together here, uh, one of the questions I really thought I really liked that you sent was, how do you define freedom? And that was one of the biggest, that was one of the biggest shifts in mindset for me as I went through all this, was defining freedom in my own world. Come to find out later, now that I've done more reading and hopefully grown up a little bit, that I was really defining freedom in the classic American sense of defining it negatively which is to say freedom is a lack of restriction. And yeah, that, to some extent that's true. And to some extent that feels, it, it feels good that that possibility, that potential out there, it's important to have that, but it's also just not, re- it's just not at all realistic in many cases. So we're all constrained. We're constrained by the time and place we're born. We're constrained by the bodies we get and the culture we're in and, and on and on and on it goes. And so for me, I suddenly had these, significant additional constraints and when i was thinking of being free in the negative sense it was almost a pure bad you know a pure negative because now my potential has been diminished the number of potential futures for blake is severely you know less than it used to be uh it's shrunk meaningfully and that's just not the right way to go about it you know i think i've come to view freedom not now, not as having a lack of restriction, but instead having the right restrictions. You wouldn't say a fish on the beach is free of the water, you know? Right? Like, it's just not... <laughs> True. Totally. Yeah. Right? I, I, I know that's a little bit of a ridiculous analogy, but, you know, it, it, it's, it, I think it serves. But you're also technically right. Like, the fish is free of the water, but then you're like, it's flopping around and it's about to die. Like, that's not working. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, see more human example you jump out of a plane free of a parachute you know not ideal definitely not free of gravity at that point no no because there are other you know, like the system we all inhabit is inherently constrained and so when you think about maximizing what you are like no the fish the fish is not free on the beach because that's not what the fish is built for it's just not the fish has a has a purpose and it's got tools to utilize for that purpose and those all involve it being in the water and human beings are tough to analogize, I think, there, because we all change so much over the course of our lives, and, and we're all so complicated. But for me, a few of the constraints that got applied, instead of thinking, okay, I really wish these constraints didn't exist, because if they didn't, I would do X, Y, and Z. So, all right, well, that's just going to lead me down a dark hole. 
no, okay. Now I have constraints. You know, I, I don't have my legs. I, you know, my athletic career is gone or in question at the very least. Here's what college I'm going to go to so I can live at home and still go to therapy and all these things. And it's like, okay, that's going to maximize who I can be in this environment. That's going to get the most out of who I am right now. And you can't, this was a harsh lesson to learn and I'm still learning on a daily basis, but you know, we don't get to pick our constraints a lot of the time, but we do get to pick our attitude in those constraints to maximize what we are, but we can't get to maximization without discerning our purpose. What are we for? What are we, what are we built for? What tools do we have to accomplish that? That is obviously, you know, we've been asking that since Plato and Aristotle and, you know, I don't mean to dismiss all of Western philosophy, so I'll leave that to them. But anyway, that's as long as I can possibly, well, no, it isn't. That's about as short as possible as I can possibly take to get, get to where my mindset is now. But yeah, dude, the idea of like having the right constraints in your life, like I love that. It's such a, it, like it's a, a reorganization of a sentence, but it's also incredibly powerful as are most slight shifts in reorganization of sentences if you can internalize them. And I love that you said, you know, in my world of needing to go to therapy and living at home till I can kind of figure the next steps out and get a little bit more independent, you know, this is how I'm going to be the best version of Blake I can possibly be. And I love that mentality. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Obviously, you went beyond that constraint into the Olympics and like world championships and rowing. And then now you're attempting the second sport in canoe. Where did all that come in? And how did you get involved in that world? And what was this? What was the progression from like just getting out of the hospital and being okay to that? Yeah, sure. So I think that was that might just be a more applied, specific example of kind of the same thing we were talking about, about letting go of what, what my idealized version of my life was going to be and accepting where I was at and getting the most out of that. So one thing that was kind of interesting when I got, uh, and you'll get this, the, uh, when I got out of the hospital and I, you know, I, it was no longer life and death, and you know, everyone around me is trying to be positive and put things out in front of me to go get, and, and I appreciate that. They really meant well. But one of the strange things was that the people that said, oh, there's this para-rowing thing you could go do. And I think para-rowing premiered in Beijing in, in 08. And this was 09 when I was six. So it was like, it's kind of new, but it's out there. People knew about it. It was almost exclusively non-rowers that recommended it. And the, the, rowing, the rowing team, coaches, all of that was very much more reserved about it. And I think a lot of that has to do with, they, you know, rowing is such a weird sport. As, as you know, like it's, it's hard to analogize unless you're in it. You don't really know how it works. They all knew how constrained, in a literal sense, para rowing, especially with your arms and your shoulders, is compared to able-bodied rowing, especially in a big boat. You know, there's just nothing like, there's no way to explain to someone who hasn't done it what it's like to be in an eight that is moving well. Now, I appreciate the absurdity of me sitting here saying my high school's varsity eight weighing in it, you know, 155 pounds soaking wet moved like you know your olympic eight in rio so again these are the type not of degree but like anyway you just roll with that 
Right. But it's all relative because we, we all started in high school and then we went to college and then we just like tried to maximize that next step to your point. Like that was the, you know, we're 18 years old trying to learn how to not flip the boat over. Like that's just what high school rowing is kind of. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. So within that context, it's like, all right, great. I'm going to go back from, you know, my old erg scores, my old 2Ks or whatever to just my arms and my shoulders. Like that's not what this sport's all about. It doesn't feel right. Whatever insert series of objections and complaints is is the punch and they're all legitimate like i would stand by them they're all true they, they're still true but it still doesn't feel like it used to when i row but you know i got to really what did is i graduated from college and i said okay i'm kind of getting heavy and lazy and this just isn't good like i'm, I'm becoming an adult i i did know i was going to go to law school at that point so kind of transitioning into adulthood. And I said, okay, I've got to find a way to work out consistently that, you know, it's taxing and all those things. And the erg, especially for someone in a wheelchair, is fantastic. I mean, it's great for everybody, but it's fantastic for people in a wheelchair because, you know, it's inside, you're out of the elements. You don't need, you know, as long as you've got the erg, you can put a seat on it. You don't need a ton of equipment. It's relatively easy to get on and off. So it really is this, this ideal thing for me. And I said, okay, in the name of health, I'll just do it got the seat, put it on the erg, was really not a good version of myself for about a month. And I'm, I'm not trying to be funny, just I was frustrated and angry and like this, this feels wrong in so many ways. And I started to get over it. My dad made a good comment right in there. He said, you know, it strikes me that you're kind of frustrated that this is not what it used to be for you. And I just encourage you to say this, this is not rowing anymore. And, you know, what he meant was just appreciate you know you can you can appreciate what what rowing used to be for you and how great that was how much you loved it just treat this like an entirely new sport and get everything you can out of it and i didn't do that overnight but i finally got there so you know what that's right this is a whole new thing i'm gonna stop comparing it to what it used to be and that was a huge breakthrough not only for me but even for my coaches who you know came through they were you know they'd never been involved in para rowing they didn't know anything but when we threw out the relative rule book i think we actually made a lot of progress because we said okay we're not going to be we're not going to try and shoehorn arms and shoulders rowing into what we know about how to move a boat. Let's just learn this from first principles again. And that was awesome. I mean, best decision I might've ever made was getting back into on the erg and back into rowing. Erging went well, as you know, the US publishes time standards on erg, erg times. And once you reach the level, you can try out, did that, got invited, made the team. I'm not proud of saying it took me four years to get back to erging or you know five to try out for the team. Um, I should have done it before then, but maybe my only defense there is it takes as long as it takes. You know, if I could go back and tell 18 year old me to, you know, get over it in a hurry, I would. But so it goes, you know, I was, I was three seconds out of a medal and, you know, sorry, man, you can relate to this. You know, I goes. mean, you and me both, man. You're sitting there in fourth place and you know, you start doing the whole, like, ah, oh, what could I have done differently? And, you know, like, you guys, you know, that's a little different. You know, you, you, know, you, you, you guys got eight guys that were going after it for, you know, I don't know, better part of a decade each at least. And I'm over here like, well, yeah, those four years I spent, like, drinking beer and eating chicken wings in undergrad really would have come in handy if I'd spent them on the erg a little more. So, anyway, you know, it is what it is. But... That was that was an application saying, you know, I could just accept that this is reality and I'm trying to get the most out of it. And that would have worked out a lot better. Dude, it's it's I mean, I just 
have been sitting here not talking a whole lot because I love listening to everything you're sharing with us about your mindset, about how you kind of went from one thing to the next to the next. And like just the nuggets that you've dropped in through here, man, is so valuable. And I really appreciate you coming on. I, I do want to respect the rest of your day because I know you got a job and you got training to get to as well. Um, so I am unfortunately going to have to transition us and maybe we'll have to have you back to finish out this story another time, but transition us to the focus five, which is the same five questions I ask every guest on every show. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right, man. First question. You said you read a lot. What book have you gifted most often? Man's search for meaning. Victor Frankl. That's a new one. I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah. Recommend it to everybody. If you could get an hour of somebody's time, past or present, live or dead, and ask as many questions as you wanted, who would that person be and why? Walt Disney, because of the magnitude and strangeness of his success. That's a cool answer. What is one thing that you believe most people would disagree with you on? Oh, um, don't follow your passion. Yeah, okay. Necessarily. Say more. Yeah. Necessarily, got it. Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. How do you like to start your day? I like to get up and work out as soon as I can. You know, not, not really intense. I'm not as good at early in the morning, but I like to get up and get moving. Not that I feel good during the workout. I don't, but I'm better during the rest of the day. Yeah, I think a lot of us can probably agree with that. It's just getting going is the hard part. Man, what is the best place online that we can connect with you the most? I know you said you haven't posted on Facebook a lot recently, but you've got a lot of inspiration here that people are going to want to hear a little bit more about, I'm sure. So where can we hit you up? You know, I probably check LinkedIn more than anything else. Actually, that's probably my big, biggest one. Right on. So we will link up to Blake's LinkedIn down in the show notes. So it's easy to find guys. And dude, Blake, thank you so much for being on the show, man. This has been really awesome. You've, you've really brought a lot of value today. And I'm sure that the listeners will get a ton out of this. So thank you again. And I really appreciate you being on. All right. Um, this has been great. Thanks for having me. And that's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Uh, if you want to connect with Blake, LinkedIn is the place to do that. I've got that queued up down in the show notes uh, so you can find his profile easily. Um, gosh, he's got a lot to share and he posts some good stuff there. So uh, go check him out there. And then I've also got all my social stuff down in the show notes. If you want to connect with me one-on-one, hit me up on Instagram at Chief Snaw. And if you're getting value out of the show, please head over to iTunes and leave it a rating and review because it really helps me grow, get it, get the show in front of a few more people who need to hear this content. And of course, uh, uh, gives me some great feedback on how to keep improving. So thanks in advance for that. And without any further ado, we're going to sign it off. This is Hans Strazina, host of Another Way to Play. And remember to make every chapter better than the last.